part of life. It's it's the it's the real danger of falling in love with someone or having love because mm -hmm. love would not be precious if it couldn't be lost. Uh, it's like the great paradox, right? That you can that well, you can, and you don't grieve something that you didn't love. Right. So grief is an expression of love. And you know, like you said, today's episode that I put out was on guilt and grief. And I even had somebody reach out and say, you know, I it really helped me think about my divorce in a different way that I was feeling all of this guilt. And really what I was feeling is that I just had no power. I was completely powerless in this situation. And, and one of the points that we made in the podcast this week is that it is easier to feel guilt than to feel like you had no power. But a lot of times you just need to realize that you had no power. That's why I talked about that earlier, us we're powerless over death. So instead of feeling guilty over the fact that we couldn't do anything about it, it's accepting the fact that we were just powerless in that situation. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome, bienvenidos. Contract Diagnostics is a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, most likely a few additional times as well. I love this company as they've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they are signing, but what risks they are taking for their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours. They make it easy for you. All packages are flat priced so that you know what you will pay upfront. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash contract diagnostics or 888-574-5526. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash contract diagnostics or 888-574-5526. And before we get into the interview with doctors Eric and Marcy Larson, I would just like to remind you that if you are interested in getting on the waitlist for the Women Physicians Medicine, Marriage, and Money group coaching, please follow the link in my show notes. It will be library.medicinemarriageandmoney.com forward slash waitlist. And we will be working on relationships, how to take your relationship from where it is now to the next level, how to create a more successful marriage, a more successful connection, unconditional love, bond between you and your spouse, and then also sprinkle in a little bit of money and, and, and talk about our personal goals. So I would love to have you guys, please check it out. The Women Physicians Medicine, Marriage, and Money group coaching waitlist at library.medicinemarriageandmoney.com forward slash waitlist. Please help me welcome our guests on today's show of Medicine, Marriage, and Money, Drs. Marcy and Eric Larson. Marcy is a board-certified pediatrician, and Eric is a board-certified anesthesiologist. Eric hosts the Paradox podcast, and Marcy hosts the podcast Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Welcome, Marcy and Eric. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you for having us. So tell us a little bit about you too. Well, I mean, I guess I can start. So I grew up in Michigan. I'm full-time anesthesiologist here in in Michigan. Did my training at University of Iowa, which is where I met my, uh, Marcy. Did residency training there. We have three kids. And um, I started the, my podcast in April of 2018, where I just talk about medicine in the U.S. healthcare system, which sounds super exciting, but actually it's been able a great way of learning a lot about stuff that I didn't really know. I had a few episodes in mind initially, and since then, I've just met so many really cool people, which has been the best part about podcasting really is just the variety of people you meet and usually really very pleasant people, <laughs> people I'd like to meet in person at some point, yeah. And you are just about 100 downloads away from 100,000, so yes, that as, was a big milestone. As we speak, yeah, so. Oh. 100,000 more people than I thought would ever download my show. So, <laughs> And what about you, Marcy? So yeah, my name is Marcy Larson. I am a pediatrician. I've been in general pediatrics practice since finishing up my residency at the University of Iowa in 2003. Yeah, I've been doing general peds for a long time. I started my podcast. I will go into this a little bit later. Just about a year and a half ago. And it's now I'm just a few downloads short of 50,000. So we're both kind of at our big milestones for us. But that's been going well. I don't know. I don't feel like I want to talk too much about what my show's about quite yet, because I think it will become across later. So and I like to start off with all my guests is since you know this is a marriage podcast, I like to ask what your definition of marital interdependence is. Uh, yeah, so I, I'll answer that. I think, well, I probably would not be eating very well if I wasn't married. <laughs> and I mean, I- I know that's the case, <laughs> yeah. you would not. <laughs> and so I, I ate before we got married. But he was afraid to cook meat. So most <laughs> foods were, it was, oh, really, really? That's me. I don't like touching it. Yeah, he just was afraid that he would, I don't know, give himself food poisoning or oh, something. Oh, yeah, I was convinced I could. Yeah. yeah, so he, really his diet consisted of a lot of tuna helper, actually, when I met him. Like, that's what his cupboard was filled with, was tuna helper. And when he cooked for me, that's basically what he cooked for me. I think you had tuna helper and bean burritos. That I think pretty is much pretty much your diet. Pretty much in, the diet. I had some food occasionally. Yeah. It's probably why we got married so quickly after we started right. dating, actually, just because he wanted an increase in his uh, diet. It was my survival instinct, <laughs> for it, pretty much. Yeah, but you know, I think you know when it comes to, but seriously, when it comes to a lot of things, I you know, I think we find we found. Um, I don't know how I get by in life without her. Uh, there are a lot of things for emotionally, and I think you know the support that she provides when I have my kooky ideas, like, Hey, I'm gonna start a podcast. She's like, yeah. you know, the fact that she didn't <laughs> roll her eyes in front of me um, is a testament <clears throat> to who she is, but those sorts of things, I think those are the, the things that matter. And then, you know, when it comes to raising the kids and, you know, having kids and kind of figuring out how to get through life, well, it's important to have someone, you know, you can trust and who's okay with you being kind of a screw up a lot of the time. Well, I think even all the way back to getting through medical school and residency, what a blessing it was to be together and to be able to experience that together and have that kind of support of someone that really understood what you were going through. Because yeah, we started dating our the very beginning of our second year of medical school and the second year on was a whole lot better than that first year when you felt pretty lonely. That, that also might've been because we did biochemistry, but, uh, <clears throat> but it might've been Marcy. I'm not, 
I'm not sure. I will take credit for it being better. Yeah. Well, tell us about that. What was that like? Would you meet second year in med school or what, how, what was it like meeting for the first time? Well, yeah, we met we met our first year, but fortunately she forgot that. And so I I'll, did. I did. So I will tell the story of when I thought I met Eric, which actually was not true, but it's when I thought we first met. So at the University of Iowa, I do not know if it, this is like this now, but at the time you had to go buy your books at the medical student bookstore and the medical student bookstore was open for 45 minutes a day. So it was basically just a room in the lower level of this building and all of the books for the first and second year medical students were in there and you would have to stand in line. And if you got in during that 45 minute window, if you got in the room, you could buy your books. And if you didn't get in the room, then you had to come back the next day. So it was this big thing and everyone would stand in line. And my two of my girlfriends and I were standing in this line and we didn't think we had any chance of getting it. And I didn't even bring my book list of what I needed, but we were just standing in line anyway. Well, at the last minute, this girl was coming to close the door and Eric quickly stepped aside, letting my two girlfriends and I in the room so that instead of him being the last one, we were the last ones. I know, very sweet of him, right? And then since I did not know any of the books that I really needed, and we were in the same medical school class, then he had to help me pick out my textbooks. So, And then two days later, I think, was it two days later? We had our first pathology small group, which, you know, just like 10 or 12 students, and he was in there. And so we shared a microscope together that day. And ended up, he ended up walking me home and asking me out on a date that day, which I accepted. And 15 months later, we were married. <laughs> but what's super funny about the story is that I got back, you know, and I told my roommate about this really sweet guy, the one who had let us in to get our books and how he was, you know, we had pathology together and he walked me home and he was so nice. And he asked me out on this day and she goes, don't you remember him? He was the creepy guy last year with the broken arm. <laughs> because the year before our freshman year, there was this guy that had broken his arm and I would find him staring at me across the lecture hall. I would just look up and there would be this guy just looking at me. And one time I sat down kind of late to biochemistry. I came in and sat down and he said, hi, Marcy. And it totally freaked me out because I had no idea who he was and how he would have possibly known my name. So he was like this creepy guy. But it turns out, thank goodness I forgot because he really wasn't a creepy guy at all. He was just terribly sweet. But it had he had made it a goal when he was returning to the second year of medical school that he was going to meet me. Like he had told his best friend, I'm going to meet this girl. And then he ended up marrying me. So we had a we had a herd book, like lots of places. Did, yeah, right? we had this herd book. Pictures and so, uh, yeah. I mean, I might have been able to make some room in the in the um, in the bookstore, and then to I think we ended up. I'm not exactly sure how we got assigned microscopes, but I think I somehow <laughs> had a way of making sure that we ended up with the same one. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, that is kind of like a stalker. Wait, it is a little bit. Much, yeah, a little it, bit. It yeah. sounds much worse when she tells a story. <laughs> it's not how I remember it, but. I can see how it be interpreted that way. How did you not interact the whole first year? I mean, how, with the staring, the broken arm, what was that about? Uh, well, no, it was it was late. I mean, it was big in the yeah. in, 
And the broken arm story is actually quite a funny story too. Just even how you got the broken arm, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how I broke my arm now. Like why you broke your arm? He was doing intramural. Oh yeah, soccer. soccer yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the University of Iowa Medical School versus the University of Iowa football team. We lost. I'm sure that shocks you. <laughs> yes. So Eric was the goalie, and a guy who was a running back for the Hawkeyes, who actually went to the NFL, kicked a ball. Eric blocked it amazingly, but it broke his arm. <laughs> He kicks it. He kicked it really hard. It turns out he had really strong legs. It was a strong guy, by the way. It turns out when yeah, when you're kicking the ball five feet away from someone, even if it's a soft ball for indoor soccer, it still hurts. I I didn't I don't play soccer, so I thought well I can play goalie. And I think I, what what's amazing. So I, the the trainer this happened the first half. So I go the you know the trainer in second half. He well at halftime he said well you know we're looking at your arm. It, can you move it? I'm like, yeah, I can move it. It's just sore. He's like, yeah, he probably just sprained it. It's like, all right. So I went out <laughs> and I really couldn't move it real well. So I had to use one hand and two legs to, for the rest of the second half, which actually I did pretty well. I blocked a lot of shots <laughs> just with my legs. I think we lost 18 to like one or something. It was, <laughs> it's kind of what you'd expect. It, it is totally not fair. You do not put the medical school against the football team. I mean, that is just not right in any I, I don't know that medical school would ever play well against anybody outside of maybe the dental the law students. School, I think you could. Maybe. I think maybe you could take on the law school or the dental school. I mean, unless we had we're full pharmacy of pharmacy school, a bunch of orthopedics, or uh, you know, then we'd probably be okay if a bunch of orthopods are on the team. But so anyway, so I had a broken arm, and I actually got in the paper because I was playing football with my friends. It was my left arm, so I'm like at a park or something. But that happened late. That was in like in spring, so yeah. I didn't at that point. I. We never had any classes together or anything. So no, I really... none, no, it was only those big lecture halls that were like 150 of us in there. Yeah. And this is where I kind of like noticed you and like, oh, and then, then it was summer. So, you know. Okay. So it was a year of him staring at you. Then he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman, helped you buy your books, shared a microscope. And then when did the love set in? When did you know you loved him? Really soon I did actually. It was, we did not have that many dates. And I said, I remember saying, I think I'm falling in love with you. And you said, I like you too. <laughs> I thought, okay, that was not the right thing to say. Clearly that's going a little bit fast, but, but by, by Christmas time. So this, you know, started out in September and by Christmas time, I know you had told your best oh, yeah. friend that we were going to get married. I mean, yeah. it was, it was pretty quick really because it was yeah september 19th and then yeah our first day was september 19th i was pretty sure even by thanksgiving yeah thanksgiving you brought me home yeah to meet your parents so that's pretty quick mm -hmm. so what was it eric what was it about marcy what did you fall in love with just her kindness she's real pretty i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no that's perfect kindness and beauty that's what all women want to hear right yeah when she thought it was funny so that was um he is funny Sometimes. And cute. Yeah. Right. Well, there you go. There so. you go. Well, let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to case you guys got married, you had kids, and let's talk about your children and especially your son, Andy, which is the reason why I brought you guys on this show today. Sure. Um, so we have three. They're all, they're all two years apart. Katie was born first year of residency, second, second year residency. Second yeah. year of residency. Because um, we actually had a miscarriage first year, but. Right. And so she was. She was born on my birthday. Uh, it was not mm -hmm. the plan because Marcy had got preclamptic because 
she was doing, you know, 36 hour shifts in the NICU or PICU or whatever. And yeah, um, it, it was crazy. It's amazing actually how much harder your residency was in anesthesia, uh, except it was a year shorter, but My, anyway, yeah, but so she got preclamptic 37 weeks they induced her and, um, and we thought, well, it'll be a day or so before the side attack kicks in. And then it kicked in. Yeah. So her dad came in with my birthday cake and an hour later took the birthday cake out of the room <laughs> and I didn't see it till the next day. So that, but I had a daughter. Um, and then we had Andy right before we left Iowa. So that was in 2004. Mm-hmm. And then Peter was born two years later. Here After in, we were here in Michigan. <clears throat> here yeah. in Michigan. And he's actually the only one, uh, strangely, who's born in Michigan of the five of us. Uh, I was actually born in Des Moines and then my parent family moved away when I was six months old. So I actually have Iowa roots as well, which is part of the reason why I ended up at Iowa. But And, and I'm from Iowa. So. Yeah. And so then, you know, all great kids. They got along great. They really, I mean, they're, you know, you talk to people who have kids who really fight a lot. You might know a pediatrician who may know a story or two about that sort of thing. But our kids really always got along really well. I mean, mm-hmm. they had, they would have little arguments and stuff, but it, it was really didn't last very long and they they play together all the time and so we were a really tight family i mean i mean people would comment on that how the larsons were just like a unit we just always went everywhere all of us together that they were were rarely really apart yeah Um, and and the boys especially you know they they were yeah like twins sort of best friends they were definitely each other's best friends best advocates and the greatest thing about our family i think is really there wasn't a whole lot of there's never a whole lot of jealousy or um, like one-upsmanship with between the kids. And so it's not like, uh, you know, they would always celebrate each other, their victories. So someone would do well on tests or something or whatever would be do well in a concert or something. And they'd all get excited for each other. So it was, I mean, we were always very blessed that they, they just really meshed well together. And so, and especially the boys, I mean, they were, like I said, they're best friends. They did everything together. Their friends would come over and they just, They'd have to play with with each other and yep. their friends. And if stuff. a friend would come over, you'd have to play with both of them. You couldn't <laughs> just play with one because even though they were two years apart, they they were just always together. And they really liked to have people come to our house because if you have one of them invited to go to someone else's house, well, they would both want to go. And it would be really hard to say, well, you kind of have to take them both or neither. But it, it often is what it was. Yeah, and usually a lot of the a lot of the boys had other siblings, so that it usually worked out that they could go someplace together. But uh, yeah, when when one of them was, was left behind, it was they were just like lost, just like wandering around because you know their sister they play with and stuff. But she's a girl, and she just kind of just was interested in different stuff. She wasn't you know going to go outside and play sports or whatever. Yeah, cars, you know. They both played baseball. They both played soccer. They both sang in the choir. They just did all the same activities. When one liked it, they both did. And, did, and they ever, um, you say, you know, there was never any jealousy or one upmanship. I mean, that probably says a lot about how you guys treat each other, you know, how you model and how you parent. Did you ever have to discipline them? Like, did they ever? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, they were angels. But no. That's no. definitely true. And there, and it's funny that you said that there was never any, because they didn't, you're right in that they never really fought or anything like that. But Andy always felt that he wasn't quite as good as the other two. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. The The oldest one and the youngest one were both super good at school. And it just was really, really easy for them. And 
Andy was a bright kid, but for this family, he wasn't a really bright kid. And so it's funny. He would always feel like he was the dumb one. And we actually also have a foster son that we haven't mentioned. Oh, I didn't he, mention Valeriano. Yeah. yeah. So Valeriano, our, our, he's, he's older than the others, but he's from Guatemala. And so he didn't really have schooling until he got here and tried to like do high school right away, which was really difficult for him. And I you know one day Andy said, Oh, I'm just, I'm the dumb one. And Valeriano reached across the table and gave him a high five and said, we both the dumb one, Andy. And, <laughs> and made us all just laugh because Andy just never felt quite as confident being around the other two. But, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like when we when they get into arguments or something, we'd always and get angry with each other. We'd always say, you know, not that you had to say sorry, but you had to f- go up and ask for forgiveness. And I think that always I think that helped. But I think, you know, in many ways, we're just lucky that their personalities just kind of meshed. I think, you know, I it's it depends on the parenting for sure, but it also depends on the kids, too. I think that's probably just as that's as important, probably, you know, how they're, you know, wired. Yeah. Along, right. I think you're right, though. I think it is nicer in some ways when you discipline your kids to have them ask for forgiveness than just I'm sorry, because a lot of times that can be insincere. And when you really have to ask for forgiveness, it's certainly tougher. But, you know, then you the other person has to grant it or not grant it. So you have to have a little bit of sincerity. Oh, I really appreciate that tip because that is not something I've tried with my daughters yet. (laughs) No, I, I, you know, it forces them to, and then usually it kind of ends in a hug because that's sort of like the way you say, yeah, I, I forgive you. So I don't know. It worked for us, but Mm -hmm. again, maybe it's as much to do with the kids as anything. Yeah. I think their personality is a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then tell us a little bit about Andy's story. Well, I guess I'll describe Andy and then you can sort of expand yeah. on it. So, okay. so Andy's a super, was a super talented kid. He was a kid, probably ADHD and he had trouble focusing at times, which is, I think part of his school problems. Again, he was really sharp. And I remember even when he was little, I thought he was like, he was smarter than Katie in some ways. In some ways. Yeah. yeah I mean, his emotional intelligence was off the charts, right? He absolutely knew how you're feeling and how you were, and he would perceive all sorts of emotions from people that they wouldn't express, but he definitely knew it. Um, yeah, I remember him even back in second grade and he came, well, I picked him up from school one day and he was so upset. And I was like, Andy, what's wrong? And he said, the kids, the other kids were just so mean to Senora Prindeville today because <laughs> that was his teacher's name. And he was just feeling so bad for her. And I'm, I'm sure she did not even think it was a particularly awful day, but he was just always so concerned about others and how they were feeling. And then he would get anxious about others being slighted in some way. So I always thought it was so sweet that he would feel so bad for his teachers that they were not being treated well enough. So he had a, he was, um, he was an up and down kid all the time. And so he'd be real excited and then really disappointed and then be real excited. And, and which is not, I'm very level. And so for me, it's, it's not, so in that ways, we sort of like clash a little bit or we just yeah. wouldn't mix real well because mm-hmm. I gets- got him more. I understood oh, yeah. him more because I'm a more emotional person. But yeah, he would say we'd be going on vacation. Dad, aren't you so excited? Aren't you so excited? And Eric would be like, 
okay, yeah. But he wasn't, and it would just frustrate Andy to no end that he wasn't like super excited about this. But then the next second, like we're super excited he's going to go golfing. We're gonna all gonna go golfing. It's going to be amazing. And then he'll hit this horrible shot and the world will be ending that everything is just awful because Andy hit a bad golf shot. Like, oh, and it just drove Eric absolutely crazy. He'd be like, oh, we should just leave the golf course. Like, well, I think we can talk him down. I think we can be okay. But so he was, and he was very emotional um, in the sense too, that he just, like he said, he just got things. And so that's why like, so I have very little musical talent and by very little, I mean, zero. <laughs> and he had a tremendous amount. I mean, Marcy's very, very musical and talented that way, but he was even more so than, than you. And, yeah. and it's so funny he- when we would listen to the kids play the piano. <laughs> they would all have like a different skill level. Our oldest would obviously be the best and it would go down in line. But when you heard Andy play the piano, it always sounded like music. Always. Even when he was little, he just made music. It wasn't just playing notes to him. And so you'd hear our daughter who's two years older and better, but yet it wouldn't sound as musical as it always did with Andy. So he's piano teacher even would have him sometimes just make up songs because he could just hear it, hear what would sound good in his mind. So it was fun. Yeah. I, I remember you tell me that one day I said, they all, I, cause I would listen to Peter and I could tell Peter wouldn't make any mistakes. Like he get all the notes. And he's she, our little engineer. He's a little perfectionist. And so, the youngest. and so she said, well, yeah, just listen to what Andy plays. And I listen like, Oh, you can actually like hear emotion, which I never really, mm-hmm. since I'm not a musical person, I never really thought about it, but like, Oh, I can actually hear the difference. And so anyway, it was not surprising when he, then we, he started singing for the Grand Rapids choir of men and boys, which is a, a sort of traditional boys choir, which aren't many in the country or in the world really. No, um, uh-uh. I and there are only a handful or six or eight or something in the country. And he really excelled at it. He was, he not only enjoyed it, but it was um, something that he was really, really good at. And, and then Which helped his confidence a lot because yeah. he didn't have really great confidence in a lot of areas, but he was just fantastic at that. His voice was amazing. So that helped him a lot. And he loved sports. He loved watching sports. He loved participating. He just loved being, being part of the team, being a part of the team. Yeah. He could be the kid who's, comes off the bench in soccer with like five minutes left in the first half. And you'd comment like, boy, you only played like eight minutes or something, which, you know, we're driving a long ways and he's playing eight minutes. He didn't even notice. He was like, oh, I guess not. <laughs> yeah. It, he just did not bug him at all. He did not care. He just loved to be a part of the team. And people in general love to have him be a part of the team because he was everyone's greatest cheerleader. He was always there making his friends and teammates feel like they were amazing. You know, so he didn't have to be good at it. Every coach would want Andy to be on the team only because he was so supportive for others. Yeah. And he played hard. I mean, yes, he, wasn't, he did. He wasn't super athletic, but he, he was, was tiny. He was so tiny. tiny. So it was really hard for him to keep up with the other kids because he was so much smaller. It helped him vocally, though. I mean, he's a great soprano for the Grand Rapids Square Men and Boys, but. The small size was not a blessing for most sports. <laughs> and I think, you know, that part of his personality is probably what helps the help the kids and the family too, because he was like your classic middle kid, sort of bridging everyone together. Mm-hmm. And he was always the energy in whatever situation and whatever's going on. And so I think, you know, just what he did in the field was the same thing he was at home. He was just kind of always the center of things, partly because of his emotionality, but just partly because he just enjoyed all well, he things. made things more fun. Yeah. He actually, he made our lives much more fun. He was excited, right? 
Yeah, his favorite phrase was, I'm sure, Mom, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Even talking about, we'll talk about a little bit about the day he died. So we were going to go to a Whitecaps baseball game. That's a Whitecaps or a minor league baseball team here in Grand Rapids. And it was a work trip from my office. Originally, it was just going to be the three of us that were going to go, my two boys and me, because Eric was scheduled to work late. Our daughter, Catherine, was scheduled to have a violin lesson that she didn't want to miss. And our son, Valeriano, was working. Uh, so it was just going to be the three of us. I remember Peter saying it'll be a great mother-son event to go to. But And so I was picking Andy up from school that day. He was just about to become a freshman at the Aviation Academy here in town. And he, again, was just super excited. Life was good. He had just made the JV soccer team and actually had been named a starter, which was amazing because, as we said, he usually was just always coming in off the bench. And for some crazy reason, those two weeks of soccer practice, he was unbelievable. Like he was making goals that he had never made in his life. And I kept being fearful that at some point in time, the coach would realize that he wasn't as good as he was showing and that he would not keep his starting spot. But that's. He was just ecstatic. And the day I picked him up, he like called me twice when I was on my way to pick him up, just being so excited. And I picked him up and he said, Mom, I'm so excited. And I said, oh, Andy, why are you excited? Is it that you have soccer practice tonight? Is it this, that? And he goes, no, I'm excited to go to the Whitecaps game. Because he was excited to just go to the baseball game and to go and eat food and because he could have unlimited food and all of this stuff. So. He went to soccer practice like normal that night. I had a carpool to bring him there. And then he had a, he rode with a friend home and he was texting me the whole way home about how excited he was to go to the baseball game. He gets home, he ran upstairs just to change from his soccer stuff and came back down. And Eric unexpectedly had gotten out of work early. It was just kind of crazy fluke that the ORs were really slow. And so he asked if there was another ticket to the game. And I asked at my office and sure enough, there was, and she was going to run it out to the house. And I said, no, no, we'll just stop by. We'll pick it up on the way. It's not a big deal. And so we stopped and picked up the ticket and we're a little bit behind schedule. The game was supposed to start at around 7.10, I think. And we were on the freeway at just about seven o'clock. So we were going to be a little bit late, but they weren't serving food until 7.30 anyway. So it didn't really matter. And we're in heavy traffic, freeway traffic, plus this game traffic would always back the freeway up quite a bit. And the last thing I remember was we were having a conversation, Andy and I, about what he wanted to read for the next school year and next book he wanted to read. He wanted to read the Lord of the Rings series. And I said, well, let's go find it when we get home because I know we have it. And then I looked at the traffic and I said to Eric, this doesn't look too bad. I think we'll be good. And and that's that's the last thing I remember. So Yeah. And we, got, <clears throat> we just got hit from behind. Um, we were going probably Almost that sort of that slow crawl you do on the freeway as you're on the exit lane. And this uh, woman with her 14 year old son, actually, interestingly, uh, hit us from behind at highway speed. So she's about 70. We're going about five. And um, I remember initially it was like an explosion and then we're moving and, um, you know, we're just like in the shoulder. We could like blast through a sign and stuff. I really couldn't see anything because I think probably the airbag went up or something. I couldn't see anything. And 
I almost thought, well, that was, I wasn't too worried because I felt like, well, I'm okay. And I looked over, Marcy was not doing great, but you were, you, you seemed okay. You said, you said I was moaning. Yeah, you're so moaning, you thought I was so I thought okay. you okay. And I looked back and, and Peter had kind of moaned a little bit too. And then Andy just was kind of just laying there or just like sitting in his slumped in his seat a little bit. And I, I thought, oh, he was knocked out or something. And um, then it just, something just seemed wrong and, and Peter definitely seemed okay. And so, you know, Andy's tiny. So I just pulled him out of the car and. Um, well, and by that time, someone was trying to help you. Get yeah. They're him trying to get him out of the car, car too. And so anyway, like a lot I got of him people the, had stopped. I got him into the grass and um, it, you know, he wasn't breathing. And so did CPR for a while. Another guy helped me for a while and then EMS came and or the firefighters and eventually ended up in that ambulance and it turned out that he, you know, he had died instantly in that accident and everyone else what? was pretty much unharmed. I mean, I had a laceration in my forehead. Marcy suffered a concussion. Peter had a concussion. But other than that, we were pretty much unscathed. It was weird. It was like all the energy was right behind Randy was. It was, it was really. Yeah, it was horrible. Crazy. Yeah. I remember coming to in the, just on the side of the road in the grass and I looked at Eric because by that time the EMS had gotten there and taken over. Although I remember you saying later that never did you think he was going to die. I mean, you just assumed that you would be able to get him back that, you know, I mean, I just thought he was like unconscious. I don't, you know, you don't think about these. And things. you think if only I can get an IV, if yeah. I can just get an, an IV, if I can just get an airway, if I can just, you know, he's just thinking all of that. Like, you know, that's what he does is deal with airways and, give volume and all that kind of stuff. So he thought he could save him. And then I, you know, when I came to, I just remember to looking over my shoulder and seeing a, a needle out of my little boy's chest and them doing chest compressions on him. And I just started, you know, screaming. I just kept screaming, please God, please God, please God, over and over and over again. And until they were trying to, you know, whisk me away. They said, I, your other son needs you in the, in the fire truck. They'd put him in a fire truck, but no one had bothered to shut the door. So he's watching all of it happen, which we didn't realize for quite some time that he had seen everything, you know, to see your best friend and your brother die right beside you. Pretty horrible. I mean, it was a horrible thing to lose our amazing, talented son in just the blink of an eye, right? So what, what what happened next? I mean, how did you guys how did you guys survive the next several months? <laughs> well, yeah, no I mean, the the beginning. I mean, I still I'll never forget the words that they said to us right away. Even on the side of the road, they put us both in an ambulance. Um, they took me away from Peter, saying, "Ma'am, you need to get checked out." Which really, it wasn't that at all. They just put us in there and to say. Um, despite our best efforts, we were unable to save your son. And I tell you, that's hard. It is hard to hear that. But when you are a doctor, you do not expect that your kid's going to die on the side of a road. I mean, that's not supposed to happen. Like you're supposed to make it to the hospital. You're supposed to be able to try and be able to do stuff. And it feels, you know, you feel like a failure as a, as a parent that you couldn't save your kid. But when you're a physician parent, I think it's a whole new level I that you feel this double guilt, like this definitely should not happen to my kid. Like we should be able to protect our kids even more than the average person, which in all actuality 
it's not true, right? And we don't have power over death. You don't have power over something like that. I mean, as far as, you know, surviving the, the first few, you know, it's days, weeks, months. I mean, I think you have every emotion that, that you can have. You're numb. You can't believe it happened. You kind of go over in your mind a million ways it shouldn't have happened and all the different things that had to happen for it to occur. And that if one thing was different, right? Traffic light somewhere, or I didn't go to the game or didn't go, you know, tie my shoe a different way, whatever, you know, you can kind of sort of your bargaining sort of try right. and figure things out. And um, we had great family. We had, uh, the church was great for us. They gave us all the stuff you needed, like, you know, food and all that kind of stuff. Because I had not- meals coming. This happened on the 15th of August and we had meals still coming to our house in December that people were that <clears throat> kind to us. I kept having to do it less often because they were bringing stuff every day and and then we scheduled to every other day and then it was twice a week or so but i think people wanted to do something and they didn't know what in the world to do and they felt like well, bringing them food i can do that and i do think that is important to be able to give people something to do to help you because they are all feeling so helpless like they can't like there's nothing they can do we we had some amazing friends one person was someone who was not a close friend but a friend we had in the church who worked for the the news station and she she said you need a spokesperson because it's gonna be on the news and you need to sort of have someone to, to kind of field all those sorts of questions we had another close friend who just was like the one who organized everything, who made sure the, their, their funeral was set up, you to find a cemetery plot, all the, all that stuff. Uh, and then someone, another friend who helped set up the whole thing for the, um, not, what is it called after the reception, not a reception, but yeah. visitation. I don't know. Yeah, we of. had our, we had the funeral and then afterwards having uh, a luncheon. Yeah. We had a luncheon and normally you would have something like that at your church, but our church was under construction and she rented out this beautiful facility that people have weddings at for us to be able to to have the luncheon to honor Andy and you know. Yeah. And it, you know just the, the choir just was stepping there. up. The choir was there and they sang Yeah, the, the boys and... sang that I didn't know if the boys would want to sing interestingly peter sang which he didn't want to do but he felt he had to because that's what peter andy would have done for him he thought so yeah he He sat way or he stood way on the side he wanted to go up and sing for his brother and so anyway the first you know we found a support group and so we met with a bunch of other parents who lost their child some lost adult children and some lost special needs kids and we're the kind of the only one who lost sort of a trauma and um and I thought that was really helpful. It was for me. Yeah. At first, that first day we went, I remember thinking it was really soon. We went 15 days, I think, after Andy died. We went to our first support group. So it was early. And I wanted to like run out right away. And I thought, I don't feel like I have anything in common with these people because we were the only ones there that lost like a healthy child in in that way right everyone else either had lost an adult child and almost all of them had gone through cancer almost like those were they were all cancer and then all of the other ones who lost young children were special needs later we were in support groups for other kids that like died by suicide and things like that but but that first group i just didn't feel like i would be able to get anything from them but it turns out 
that loss is just really universal. When you lose your child, it doesn't matter in many ways. It doesn't matter if they were 45 or if they were eight months. It's still the same type of loss losing your child. It's still out of order. It still just feels wrong. And there's something about that bond and that loss that binds you together and that you can learn from each other no matter what. And some of those people have become really close friends to us now, even though it didn't seem like that would be the case right away. Yeah. I mean, you're just in so much shock for the most part. It, you, you can't even believe it really happened. And for me, then, then, the, then the questions, you know, we're physicians, right? And so the question is, you know, when do you go back to work and is that helpful? Is that harmful? So for me, it was helpful. I mean, I went back and it was sort of like a good distraction. It was a good, and I met a bunch of people who are. <laughs> and I, I don't think, know when you went back, maybe two, three weeks? It's probably a month. Okay. I think it was a month. And then, so my group was real great. They just said, you're on call <laughs> till you're ready for it. And they actually let me just go one surgery center and I worked there for a month and I didn't go anywhere else. And so I just had to meet a couple people. I didn't have to meet and tell the story to, you know, different people every single day. And and you just had to, I mean, it was the plastic surgery center. So he just was doing plastic surgery healthy on patients. healthy, you know, primarily women <laughs> getting facelifts or tummy ducks or, right, yeah. you know, and so that was, I think, pretty low key. You know, you didn't have to see a kid. And that was where I struggled, obviously, because I'm a pediatrician and that's all I see are kids. And Eric really was encouraging me to get back because it had been helpful to him, one. And two, he really didn't want me alone at home because it was hard to be alone at home. I would find myself crying in his bedroom when I was alone. So that's not good. But it turns out if you're a pediatrician and you lost your child, it's not great and not easy at all to go back and see families. And I like brothers would get me upset if I saw kids wearing Michigan State shirts or anything, soccer, soccer players, all of those things would really just get me so emotional. And I would find myself crying between every patient. Like I would see a patient and then I would leave and cry. And then I would go see another patient and I would leave and cry. And that is not really sustainable. <laughs> so I, I did that for about six weeks. I think I went back after a little over a month. And I went back for about six weeks. And then I really just decided it was too much. And I couldn't handle it. And the staff, it was hard on my staff too. First of all, obviously, it was a work event. So they were all at the baseball game. And he died on the exit lane. And everyone heard the sirens. And one of the first people I called was my nurse who was at the game. And I said, there's been an accident and Andy's dead. And they all just came. Like my entire office was at the emergency room that night seeing us. So they really lived it with us. I mean, we are a family, our office, as a lot of private practice docs, I think, will attest to that you really become a family with your staff. So they would try to protect me in some ways and like, oh, we can't schedule brothers with Dr. Larson. We can't schedule 14-year-olds with Dr. Larson. We can't do this with Dr. Larson. And that was hard too, because I felt like they had a lot of pressure on them to try to not trigger me. 
but yet I was just going to cry. Like there was nothing they were going to really be able to do to keep me from being upset. And so that was hard. And another reason I think that it was easier to just leave for a time and work on myself and getting better and healing. So that's what I had to do. I had to leave for a year. I mean, I just took off a full year. It's where I learned the most important lesson in marriage. Uh, You know, as a man, you always feel like you need to solve problems, uh, which drives women crazy. I've you know, that tell you about some problem you're having. And so I come up with 10 solutions. You're like, I didn't really want any solutions. I was just telling you about the 10 problems I have today. Right. You're laughing because you're like, yeah, this is my, I live this every day. Right. And um, the biggest thing was like, you know, she didn't really, I wasn't going to make her feel better in the sense I, no matter what I said, no matter what advice I gave, it wasn't going to change anything except that she just wanted me just around. And so I just learned to just like, accept that the fact that you're sad or that you're angry or whatever. I think the only thing I did is after I recognized that that was my role was just to be present, uh, was to try and help you just deal with the anger because that was the thing that was holding you back more than anything, I think. Mm-hmm. And she was just angry at the woman who struck her car, rightly so. And, um, you know, no explanation for why she was going so fast. She didn't look, whatever. You know, you wish there was like, she was obviously distracted, but it wasn't like she was on her phone or anything like that, as far as we know. Right. She just, and she never did say what she was doing. I mean, we I don't never think she found probably out remembers. To I'm I, sure she was just I driving no and idea. looked up and hit her car. I mean, that's just my, what I imagine. And um, we know what, we know that her son screamed, mom, stop. But, her son's the one that noticed, but I, we don't know what she That was may have doing. been one second before she, were, you know, maybe. Oh, I, no, I think it was yeah. one second before. Yeah. And so th- weirdly, I would say is that I, I was never upset with that woman. Yeah, I, I know. I never was angry with her. I mean, I was upset at the situation. I was angry about sort of what happened, obviously, but I wasn't, I, I didn't have a whole lot of animosity towards her because I just assumed it was a mistake. And there's just, I don't know. That's. And honestly, that was hard on me that he wasn't angry. Yeah. Because I would have felt like it would have been easier if he would have been angry. And I couldn't understand why he wasn't angry. But And I remember saying to him, I just need her to be sorry. Like that was such a key thing for me that I needed her to be sorry. And she could never, they wouldn't really let her apologize to us for quite some time, actually, because of all of the legal stuff that happened. So it's. You know, it was very cut and dry case, but it took months for them to even do any sort of prosecution. And once they did, it was just this silly little misdemeanor. It was a nothing. So, but yeah, there were still like for a while. I remember a day the attorney was like, well, maybe he, Andy had his head out the window or his seatbelt wasn't buckled. And I just flew off the handle. Like, are you kidding me? I'm a pediatrician. My kids were buckled before the car ever went out of park. I mean, they were in car seats forever, longer than any other kids of their friends. There was no way. I mean, it just angered me so, so much that they would use things like this. But that was just kind of part of that legal system. So that was a challenge. But kept saying, I need her to be sorry. I need her to be sorry. And Eric would say back to me, but if she's not, you can't keep being like this. You can't hold on to that anger. And I realized that it was just like a poison. The anger was a poison. And I did need to get rid of it. And I would try again and again and again. And I think that's what you need to do with a lot of these kind of emotions. I think guilt is one too, that you need to let go of 
And then when you take it back a little bit, you need to forgive yourself for that and be okay with it and then let it go again. Knowing that every time you let it go, you let go of a little bit more of it permanently. And when you pick up some of that anger, you maybe aren't picking up quite as much as you had last time or the guilt. You're not picking up quite as much as you have last time. So that forgiveness and all of that, even though you need to do it again and again and again, every time you do it, I think brings you a little bit closer to that feeling of healing. And for and a sentence that's probably never been uttered before, but thank God for our accountant who helped me in the journey with forgiveness. Uh, you know, I went to talk to him because there are, you know, financial in, uh, things that happen, like what happens with taxes, what happens with all the stupid stuff that, you know, you're, you want to have straight out. And he, I've known him for years. He's, he does a, the accounting for our, our, um, our anesthesia practice, which is gigantic. Uh, but anyway, uh, he said, well, do you mind if I grab a book for you? And so he gave me a book called The Art of Forgiveness by Smeads. And I think it's S-E-A-D-E-S or something like that. Pretty small book. And he said, you know, you wouldn't think this with accountants, but we see people at their worst, like it's either a business falls apart, marriages falling apart or death. Right. And so he's, there's always this anger. There's this for, and said, the thing that helps people the most is that he said, I think is forgiveness. And he said, if you don't, if you can't forgive others, you're not forgiving yourself and you just can't carry that around. And so he said, cause I was kind of talking about that. I mean, it was, it was almost like a counseling session. It was really kind of, I mean, the financial thing took about 10 minutes and then we talked about other stuff, just like life for about uh, the rest of the hour. And uh, I read the book and then I gave it to Marcy and I think that helped your perspective too. I mean, I don't, did I read that? You, book? Did. you did. I. It's so funny because so much of those first months afterwards just end up being kind of a fog because you just can't even remember it clearly. I think the grief does so much and your body tries to protect you. You know, with all of those emotions, we try to protect ourselves from feeling everything at once. So yeah, I don't even remember reading that book. You And you did, but it was probably, I. you didn't want to read it for a while. And so you read it probably, I think the arraignment was in March and I think you read it like in February to the point where you're kind of like, mm, I could imagine myself forgiving this per person at some point. That's like as far as you got. We saw her at the arraignment, which is the first time we'd ever met her. We'd seen her online because we stalked her on Facebook, of course. You can find anybody's pictures. And uh, and then you thought- Until so her attorney had her clothes turned out off all of her accounts, right. then we couldn't yeah, Facebook but, stalk her anymore. Yeah, but. it was interesting because, you know, Marcy's impression, my impression was that this woman's terrified. She's at the arraignment. She's, you know, she could go to jail for like years. And I mean, it was, the potential penalties were pretty significant. And Marcy just saw someone who's angry and just kind of like spiteful. It was really interesting, you know, that your perception of what, I, I yeah, just, I just thought, I don't know that I thought she was angry. I just thought she was not remorseful oh, at all. I right. didn't think she was remorseful. Yeah. And it was just because where I was coming from, I was coming from this angry thing and I didn't want to see maybe someone who was scared. But by the time we got to her sentencing, so I, like I said, she just got a misdemeanor and that was, I think by that time I was feeling more okay with it. A lot of our family was really upset that that's what her punishment yeah. was. They had wanted her to go to jail. They, they still had do. wanted Yeah, we still have family that wishes yeah. she was in jail. But by that time I had learned more about her. We had found out that she actually had been in a local psychiatric hospital for suicide attempts in the months afterwards. It, she later then and the sentencing she spoke to us she read a statement to us and she talked about how even looking at her own 14 year old son you know tucking him into bed at night was hard because she would think 
the fact that she took someone's life. You know, another boy that was never going to be 15. That as her son continued to grow up, ours never would. And obviously that was really hard for her to deal with. And by the end of that day, uh, that in the courtroom, I hugged her. I truly did forgive her then. And I had been working on it for a long time. And I had pretty much forgiven her by that that day. I mean, the statement I read was not as overwhelming forgiving as yours because yours was, I was never angry at you. <laughs> and mine definitely did not have that flavor. It was, I was, and then I was angry at your attorney. And then, but now this is where I am. So it was forgiving her. But by the end of that day, I had fully forgiven her. And that was really healing for me, for sure. And then I, you know, that happened in June. And you had been working at that point for about seven months. And I hadn't been working for a long time. But that was kind of a turning point for me, I think, because in those next few weeks, I started thinking, I really need to work on healing myself. I need to work on getting back to the office. I need to work on this. And I'd been seeing a therapist and doing things, but I thought, you know, Eric has this podcast. I bet I can find a podcast on parent loss and grief that I can listen to that will help me. And I searched and searched and searched and I found nothing. And Eric came home from work and I said, I was looking for a podcast on grief and for parents and I can't find it. And he was like, ah, you're crazy. There's got to be one. There's a podcast for everything. I just assumed she didn't know what she's doing. Yeah. Searching. Right. Because, because I've look- never listened to a podcast except for his, which I don't even listen to all of his. So <laughs> anyway, he he looked and looked and he agreed that there was nothing. And that I stupidly said, you know, I, I think I'm supposed to start one. I have no idea why I said that. That is totally not me. I am not a techie person. I have never, I never really listened to a podcast other than a dozen or so of his. I had been on one that he did. He interviewed me when he went back on after Andy's death. So we did that together. But I just felt this calling like, I think I'm supposed to do this. And of course, he jumped all over it. Super supportive. You should start this podcast. And within a couple months, I did. I, you know, got a website and I interviewed him and I interviewed someone from the support group we were going to, a couple people. And I found it incredibly healing to talk to other grieving parents and to learn from them and to share their stories and hear stories of their amazing kids and what they were and what they meant to them. And now I just feel so blessed that I can share these kids with the world, with anyone who wants to listen. Because as grieving parents, as you can tell, we just don't want our kid forgotten. I mean, we talked about Andy for a long time about how, what an amazing kid he was. I don't want to go on and on about car accidents or how you shouldn't drive distracted or anything like that. I just want people to know about Andy and I want people to know that he mattered and he was a great kid. And now every single week I get to talk to parents and let them share their wonderful kids and a bit of their grief journey. So we do half kind of about the hit kid and then the other half about what they have learned along their grief journey. And 
people just pick up so much and find it so encouraging to hear these other stories and know that, wow, if she can do this, I can do it too. Because in those early days and weeks, you are really counting things by the hour. Like, am I going to be able to make it until next Wednesday? I mean, you don't, you can't think about 10 years ahead because that's just completely overwhelming. I have to think about maybe 10 days ahead if I'm lucky. So being able to see people along that journey is good. And then now I'm two and a half years out here. Now I can look back to and think and see people, talk to people who are earlier in their journey and think, wow, that's where I was. And this is where I am now. Because in the short term day to day, you don't feel like you're getting better. But when you look back to someone who's a year behind you, you can say, oh, I remember that. That is how I was feeling. And I really am improving right now. So it just gives people a little bit of hope, I think, for the future and in just ways to encourage each other. That's incredible. And I think this is probably so healing for even people who haven't lost a child, just for people who are going through stages of grief for other life reasons. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 you know, grief is funny because you know, I, I was talking to someone the other day and she was recently divorced, maybe a year or so. And I see, you know, that's in many ways, that's, there's a grief there too, right? You had a relationship that just was, was mm-hmm. lost. And so it's not the same, but, and, but the, a lot of things are, I'm sure there's all, a lot of those same emotions are there, the same, you know, second guessing the guilt, the fear, what's what life's going to be like without, you know, I mean, all that stuff sort of happens. And so I don't know. I mean, I think in, it's a shared experience. It's an experience that we all, I mean, if you're around long enough, you all, you all experience it. Maybe not, a, maybe not a, a child, but a spouse or, you know, parents, grandparents, close friends, someone, I mean, a sibling. I mean, it, it's, it's part of life. It's, it's the, it's the real danger of falling in love with someone or having love because mm-hmm. love would not be precious if it couldn't be lost. Uh, it's like the great paradox, right? That you can. That well, you can, and you don't grieve something that you didn't love. Right. So grief is an expression of love. And you know, like you said, today's episode that I put out was on guilt and grief. And I even had somebody reach out and say, you know, I, it really helped me think about my divorce in a different way that I was feeling all of this guilt. And really what I was feeling is that I just had no power. I was completely powerless in this situation. And, and one of the points that we made in the podcast this week is that it is easier to feel guilt than to feel like you had no power. But a lot of times you just need to realize that you had no power. That's why I talked about that earlier. We're powerless over death. So instead of feeling guilty over the fact that we couldn't do anything about it, it's accepting the fact that we were just powerless in that situation. And that's hard to accept. But so we do different topics too. So that was today. So I had a, an expert come on and talk about that. But it's it's been really amazing. And within about two months or so of me starting the podcast, I really felt able to go back to work. And I've been back to work now for 14, 15 months, back just as many hours as I was doing before. I mean, there are still days that are hard, right? There's still days that catch me off guard. I had recently somebody that came in who had been in Andy's class and had known Andy that I didn't know coming in that it was someone who had known my son and they didn't know that I was his mother. So the whole visit, I was like, I know that you knew my son and that you were in orientation with him. And the whole time 
they had no idea. So that was the time when I left the room and I cried again, but that's the first time that had happened in many, many months. So it's some of those things still catch you. And my coworkers are still amazing and awesome and saw my next patient. So I didn't have to, but those days are much fewer and further between than they were in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, and I always say this with my show, the biggest contribution I've made to the world is, is helping you start your podcast because um, it's helped so many. I mean, you can only imagine the emails that she gets. I mean, there are people who are like, I didn't want to get out of bed. I couldn't do something for six months. And I listen to your show. And now I, I realize just getting out of bed and just doing some two things is a successful day. And my therapist can't believe how much better I'm doing. But I mean, there's, I mean, I'm a little jealous because I never get emails like that <laughs> for my show. No one's really that excited to listen to my show compared compared to Marcy. It's not as profound. So it's been great. And I mean, I sort of unofficially became like a grief expert in the OR now. So nurses come up to me and ask me and they they recommend her show and stuff. So it's it's been good uh, in that sense. I mean, there's it's the it's the beautiful thing about a tragedy, right? I mean, there's some there's been some some goodness that's come out of the whole mm -hmm. thing. You don't want to think about that. Though. I would go back in a heartbeat. And all of that I have learned, I would throw it all away if I were to get him back, right? I would throw all of that away. But since I can't do that, then I do like the fact that I can do something good with it. And what's awesome too, is that I get to do this show with Andy every week, because that's is what it feels like. It feels like it's something I can still do with him and I can still be his mom. And we haven't even mentioned how Peter and, right, like you not only had to go through this yourselves and then together as a married couple, you had three other children. Yeah. 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 It was, I mean, there were, there were always struggles, right? I mean, I think, you know, many ways we're bad parents for probably a year. You just, you're, you're. Oh, I still in, feel like I'm. I'm you're you know, in it, you're not as attentive them. to what's going on and they're kind of going through it on their own and. In many ways, they sort of just kind of paused. And then once we were kind of better-ish, then they started, having, they started having more trouble. That is what kids tend to do when they're grieving. They really will look to protect their parents and to the detriment of themselves sometimes. And you see that. I mean, my pastor talks about this all the time, about that night in the emergency room when we had to tell Peter that Andy was dead. And he knew Andy was dead. I mean, he had been watching everything. He certainly knew that in his heart, but no one had told him. And, you know, I said it to him and he immediately reached out his arm to his hand to touch my arm to comfort me. And and my our pastor said, and that's when I knew that your family would be okay because his first instinct was to offer you comfort. And so he saw us immediately that night only turning to each other. You know, and our daughter got there and we and our foster son too. And we didn't want to separate. We were just together supporting each other from those first moments. But it's, you know, the dynamic of the family has changed, right? We had our the guy who's all the excitement energy and the one who brought all the yeah. extra fun to what we're doing. It's gone. Yeah. There's, just, there's no getting back. Peter lost his best friend. And, uh, and you know. And, and, and then, that took a long time to see him smile again and to see personality again. And it still warms my heart when I see him truly excited and happy about something again yeah. because it just, it's it doesn't come as quickly as it used to. 
right? So that is a joy for me to see him truly yeah. happy. That's we. I mean, it, in some ways, you you're so sad for what you've lost, but you're almost. I mean, I felt much sadder for our kids losing losing their brother. I mean, because I thought the, what they're going through. I mean, at some point, I leave this earth and they would be all behind, but they'd have each other. And now, I mean, that was the plan, right? right? You're supposed you to. You expect to lose your parents. You don't expect to lose your siblings. They're supposed to be there with you forever. And when they're not, yeah, especially when they're so close, right? I mean, I thought, yeah, you know, they had they had plans of things they're going to do and things they were going to oh, go. Oh, so many plans, and, you know, know. And and Peter, Andy made that soccer team, and Peter was practicing like you wouldn't believe that summer and i mean they were out there playing soccer every day and i remember saying to peter you know someday when you're a sophomore and andy's a senior maybe you can make the varsity and play with andy because they've never gotten to play on the same team because they were two years apart and peter's response back to me was mom i'm gonna practice so hard i'm gonna make varsity as a freshman <laughs> okay but what happened after andy died he never went outside and played soccer in the backyard again yeah ever mm -hmm. We had to push him to even continue on the team for a short period of time. But now he's in high school and he didn't go out for that soccer team. It's just too painful to do that without his brother. So he's found other things that interest him and he's good at and that's great. But it is a loss, right? That that had been such a dream of his to do. And so to see him totally give up on it, but it was just too painful. And there are some things that are just too painful that you can never go back to again. I remember talking to a mom. This is one of my earliest guests. And she said, I can do pretty much everything that I used to be able to do, except I can't listen to jazz music because her son was an amazing jazz musician. And I said, well, I think that's probably okay. A lot of people survive just fine without listening to jazz music. So it made me realize that, you know, she just gave that up. We can let Peter just give up soccer. If that's the one thing that's just too hard, it's just too hard, and that's okay. Like, he wasn't going to be a professional soccer player anyway. It is okay he's not a high school soccer player either. So, And I don't like soccer either, so I it's <laughs> totally fine with me. Exactly. No broken arms. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. He's that's not probably a... why I hate soccer so <laughs> that much. That probably is. That We've not talked about sport. it. Yeah, right. This, oh my gosh, you guys, this was so special. And the way you showed support, I mean, you, you answered all the questions about how you show support, you know, to your spouse when you're going through this to not fix things. You said, Eric, you had to learn not to fix things, to just accept the emotions to let, right? Because you wanted work for her. It was painful and she had to find her own way. That was just beautiful. You know, we all need different things. And sometimes we just don't know what those are in the exact moment. I guess, you know, the only thing I, I would add, just because it's in your title, um, money, that it, it, really, it really showed me the importance of having an emergency fund, right? I mean, this is a very, very practical sort of thing. But the, the, the inability to really prepare for the future adequate or at least anticipate what's going to happen in the future is probably a better way you can prepare for it but the one thing we didn't have to worry about was money and we're very, we were very blessed in that sense that we had plenty um around so we didn't have to work i've definitely talked to other moms since then like moms that are 
the PA, other physicians, things like that. I mean, I've, I'm online in a bereaved physician moms group, actually, believe it or not, that there is a actually a moms group that, huh? for bereaved physicians. And so many of them had to go back to work really soon. And especially the ones that see kids who lost kids find it horrible. I mean, just as horrible as I did that they are, again, crying between every patient, just suffering through hating it. I mean, I've had moms say, I hate having to go to work and do this, but they didn't financially have a choice. They absolutely had to go back and do that. And wow, I'm so blessed that I could go back on my own time and be able to have that cushion. I can't even imagine if I would have had to go through my job and hate it because I know these women had loved what they did before this all happened. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, the early spring last year, right, with 2019, with the with the COVID, how there are a lot of docs who suddenly don't have any money. They're, like, they're not making any money. They're out of work for six weeks because, you know, they're shut down for seeing patients or whatever. It was a huge financial stress, right? I mean, for us, it was kind of like, yeah. I mean, aside from the, People talking about dying all the time, which is really, really irritating, and uh, was really actually pretty hard. Yeah, like all the, that's you know, turn on TV, hard. and it was like just this me, you know, the death counter on the side of the screen, and that was really hard. But the not working and not making income and surviving—that was, and, you know, that's sort of an example of you don't have to have like a tragedy happen, and still, even then, it's useful to have some reserves so that you can just go and not work for a couple months if you had to. I mean, if we're this is mostly a physician audience. There's no reason a physician should have to should if, after a couple of years of practice should be in this position where they can't just not work for a couple of months financially. I mean, you should have you should always expect or at least be prepared for something that might be terrible, which is a terrible thing to talk about. But <laughs> it's like buying life insurance, right? It's something you have to have, but you don't want to think about. Yeah. No. And I and I fortunately had disability insurance too to be able to help through through that for us as well. So that made it much easier for me to take that much time too that I could turn to that disability insurance policy that you know we'd been paying for all that time and make use of it. But it was helpful. Now we've pretty much broken even with the disability insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> all of our years of paying in now, yeah. Well, thanks for touching that last point, Eric, so that we could cover all three of our bases today. I mean, you already caught it with the, what is it you said? Thank God for our accountant, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. true. Although it's so funny I'm that you told that story because I totally didn't remember it. I yeah. didn't remember any of that until you brought it up. So thank you. I'm going to read that. I'm going to actually get that book, The Art of Forgiveness. It is fantastic. It was written, I think, by a pastor here in West Michigan who has since passed away. I think it's S-M-E-A-D-E-S, and I, I think it's Arthur, but I'm not, don't quote me on that. But yeah, it's just the art of forgiveness. It's really small. He actually had a previous book where he talked about the nature of forgiveness, which I've not read. I mean, I haven't read many grief books. Except he did have to read Lament for a Son, which we got seven not, copies of. Seven copies of by different people. <laughs> it is a really good book, but seven copies. We are dealing them out to the support group. Anyone yeah, anyone who want a copy, we were um, just handing it out, like, because then another one would come, like, okay, somebody really thinks we need to read Lament first. Anyway, the, the book about the forgiveness, he wrote, a, like I said, he wrote a previous book, but he didn't explain the how you internally, he sort of just described what forgiveness was. And then the second book is sort of more practical application, like how you go about forgiving people, why it's important. I mean, essentially really forgiveness is strangely, it's actually, it's more for you than it is for the person you're forgiving. 
I think, you know, you always think that it, that you're asking someone for goodness, but really what it is is you're saying, all right, I screwed up or something, or so is it okay? Is it okay? It's okay with me that I was kind of lousy or did something wrong or cared to anger or guilt or whatever it is. And so that was, I mean, quite a, I know, I found that like a, quite a revelation for me personally. And so that's, and I see that so many people struggling with that. And again, not just with death, but all sorts of things. And so it's a useful book. Even if you've never, hopefully you never have to go through something like this. Yeah, well, I mean, I could use that in my marriage. That's like the hardest thing I do in my marriage on a daily basis. And I don't do it enough. So thank you guys so much for coming and sharing that beautiful story of Andy. Well, okay, thanks for thank you us. for having us. This podcast was brought to you by Contract Diagnostics. This is a company that specializes in contract reviews. Specialization is something we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family have contract needs, give them a call. They'll help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interests and protect the assets that you covet most, your time and family. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash contract diagnostics or by phone at 888-574-5526. Oh my gosh, I'm wondering if you guys needed tissues like I did during this amazing, heartfelt, forgiveness, lesson-filled podcast by Drs. Eric and Marcy Larson. I have so many take-home points from them. (laughs) Let's begin. Number one. Loss and grief are universal. We all experience some sort of loss and grief at some point in our lives. Whether you're going through the loss of a young child, an older child, a parent, a spouse, it hurts. It sucks. It is absolutely painful and it feels just wrong. There is no sense in comparing which experience or which loss is worse. Thinking you are alone or they won't understand, those are difficult. We are all on our own journey and that is okay. We can still go through our own journey alongside the support and companionship of others. No need to compare, just accept that it is hard and be aware that this is normal for all levels of loss. Number two, if you cannot forgive others, you will not be able to forgive yourself. Number three, sometimes what is right for us is not right for our spouse. Our answers do not have to be everyone's answers, both of our answers, and this is normal. Once you accept this and learn to just be present and supportive in whatever way is needed, the pain may begin to lift, right? So Dr. Eric Larson was ready to go back to work after the loss of their son. Dr. Marcy Larson was in a different situation, being a pediatrician, different situation, going back to work also, different person. So it's okay. There's no correct answer. And they didn't have the same journey back to work, even after experiencing the same loss. That's okay. Lastly, I want to share something we spoke about after the interview, which really spoke to me. Now, I asked how their children felt about Marcy having a dedicated podcast about Andy and about 
the morning mothers and how this affected or possibly even overshadowed their other children. And they said something that really resonated with me. They said the most important thing that they realized was to make sure their kids knew that they were each enough. That although Marcy may talk about her son every week on her podcast, her other kids still mattered. It didn't make their worth or their value or their relationship with her any less. This was just how she processed grief in her experience. And this was something very important that they had to bring up with their children because, you know, as a child, experiencing the loss of your sibling is different than when you're a parent. And that's okay too. So I just really wanted to share that with you because at the end of the interview, I was like, oh man, I should have recorded it. So here it is. I just want to repeat it. The most important thing you can share with your children, regardless of what you're going through, what kind of pain or grief or loss you may be experiencing in your life that your kids may feel overshadowed. It's, it's hard to know exactly how they feel, but make sure they know that they are enough and you're dealing and going through certain things in your life doesn't mean that they're not enough. They are. I thought that was so important. This is another thing that we talked about after the interview that I just wanted to share since I didn't capture it on recording. And I learned about this when I was listening to actually the Paradox podcast, number 25 by doctors Eric and Marcy Larson. They mentioned that when Andy was young, he drew a picture of his siblings and his parents. It's a family of four, I think it was, two, two of his biological siblings and then his parents. And he said, look at our family. And he brought it to them and and Marcy asked, well, where are you? And he said, well, I don't, I don't make, I don't grow up all the way. And he said, it's so matter of fact, like he knew he wasn't gonna grow up to be an adult. And it was reflected in this picture and this experience that had had several years before his accident. And I just wanted to share this because Marcy had said on her podcast earlier that this experience from several years before Andy's accident brought her peace, knowing that Andy knew he was going to die at a young age, was totally okay with it. Chills. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you guys walk away asking yourself, do I sincerely ask forgiveness when it truly matters? Do I sincerely ask for forgiveness when it truly matters? How can I forgive myself when I need compassion and grace? How do I process grief? And what does my emergency fund look like? Do I have a close relationship with my accountant like Eric had with his? And that is it, my friends. Thank you so much for staying to the very bitter end. And I encourage you to reach out to me to share this episode with people who may be dealing with loss and grief in their relationships, in, in their marriage, in, with children, with their parents, any sort of grief, right? We don't compare. So please share this. I think this is such an important topic to normalize. And Drs. Eric and Marcy Larson shared their story so eloquently. I am so thankful. Thank you so much.
go spread positivity and support into this world. Much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.